Well, howdy, saints of 1122. I hope you're doing well. You look great. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're in an eight-week series called uh, Love Incorruptible. Those are the last two words of uh, the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to walk through this in big chunks, really big chunks. We're covering a lot more than we really should in one, in one uh, time together. But I want you to be able to just take big chunks of Ephesians and kind of understand the theme uh, of each week and then put it all together at the end so you can understand the gospel from kind of a heavenly point of view, the gospel from your point of view, and the implications of the gospel if you surrender your life to Jesus. And so last week in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, we talked about who God is and how God saves. So this week we're going to talk about how you are and who you are, and what you and I are like, and then, the, and then what the gospel is when it intersects and interrupts our individual personal lives. And so I'm going to pick it up in uh, chapter 1, verse 15. This is right where we left off uh, last week. And Paul, the writer of Ephesians, says this, says, for this reason, and the, this reason is the last week's sermon, okay? So for that reason, since God is good, and God loves, and God is holy, and God is just, and by his richness and mercy and grace, by, by his choosing us for that reason. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And you remember last week we found out that we're a saint. All right, turn to your neighbor and say, you're a saint. All right, you should say it with a little more enthusiasm. They're a saint. It's a big deal. You could get like a necklace with your neighbor's face on it and be like, saint front row, okay? All right. <clears throat> so, you're a saint. That's pretty cool. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Now, just a reminder, this is Paul who planted the church at Ephesus. And what he is saying to the church at Ephesus is, is I do not cease to give thanks for you. I've just got to tell you something as the planner of this church. Is that I do not cease giving thanks for you. That I love this church. I mean, I really, and I know I should because, you know, uh, whatever, I'm the founding pastor. But I just mean... Like, I love so many things about this church. I love what God is doing in this church. I mean, it's crazy. Generations upon generations upon generations have prayed to be a part of a revival like this, and you're sitting in it right now, all right? I mean, just look around. You're sitting in it. That God has saved over 1,500 people since we opened the doors. That's crazy. That's really crazy. The book of Acts says, and daily people were being added to their numbers. So one of my goals is that at least 365 people will become a Christian each year. That's the goal for me. It's, it's not, it's, it's kind of taking it out of context, but that's what I hope for. We've been open for 655 days and 1,559 people have surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. God is doing amazing things here in our church. And I love that. Um, I love that we're not about conversions though. We're about making disciples. So we don't do a lot of fluffy stuff here, you know? It's not like the band gets over here and does a bunch of cover songs and I do a magic trick and then we just try to like build a big crowd because we're not in the crowd business. If I wanted to get in the crowd business, I'd do monster trucks. And, and that's not what we're about. We're in the disciple-making disciple kind of business. And so I love that we know that it's God um, growing our church because we haven't done anything that equates to church growth except glorify God in worship and word. One of the things I love about our church is I believe as a church, we really are on mission. I love that our church is knocking down the barriers and roadblocks that have kept people from coming to know God in the past. And so, you know, we don't have a dress code, and I love that. Don't you? 
Because I don't think when Jesus died on a cross and was resurrected and told the disciples to go to the ends of the earth, teaching them to obey everything that he had commanded them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and make sure you teach them what church clothes are. I don't think that was on the list. And so the fact that we're just knocking down some of those barriers, I really, really like. Um, I, I love, love, love the actual services here at our church. I mean... Word is kind of out to other churches around the country, and they're asking us, hey, what do y'all do? What's the secret? Book of Acts, 18 months. I don't know. We sing and talk like everybody else. But here's the thing. Here's what I love. I love that we can simultaneously be a safe place for you to bring your neighbor or your friend or your unchurched person or the person that's had the bad church experience. And yet, at the same time, we don't water anything down, but we seek to glorify God in worship and word. So that's why we don't do karaoke. I praise God that we have Pastor Ben Williams and that whole and our whole worship team and that we really do focus our attention on the Lord and sing to the Lord. And, and, and sometimes when I'm having conversations with my pastor friends about how we do what we do, um, I just have to remind them that often our audiences are different. So, and here's what I mean. We think that when we gather in this room that you're not the audience, but that he is the audience. And that, and that we all together are trying to sing to an audience of one. And that's why if you think it's too loud, I don't really care. Until the Lord tells us it's too loud, we ain't turning it down, okay? And that's fine. We got earplugs for you, all right? Just put on some earplugs, praise the Lord. No problem, all right? And if you didn't like that song, guess what? It wasn't to you, so it don't matter if you like it or not. We're singing it to the Lord, okay? That's what it's like. And... And if you think the singing part of our service is weird, it's totally weird. It only makes sense if you love Jesus. If you love Jesus, it's one way. It's not the way. It's not the best way. But it's one way that you show your love and devotion is you sing, you sing to him. Not just about him, but you sing to him. So if you think that's weird right now, seriously, it's totally okay for you to think that's weird. It is a weird thing, Okay. But all those people with their eyes closed and their hands up, or the people that look like they're really into it, they're really into it because they're really into Jesus. That's all there is, okay? And if you want to sing quietly with your hands by your side, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's looking at your heart, not your hands anyway, okay? But I love, I love our actual services here that we just focus on the worship and word. Um, I love the way you receive the message every week. I wish you could see your face from my vantage point, okay? It's the weirdest thing. I'm standing up here. I've got a little clock that tells me when the lights are coming on and all this stuff. And, and, I, and I tell you, I know it's crazy. This is my own flesh and insecurity. Every week, I'm still waiting on the week that nobody shows up. I really am. And, and again, it's my own insecurity, but, but you know, I'm a human, so I'm insecure. I'm waiting on the week that I step up here and it's a staff meeting. And that's it. And yet, so the fact that you're here, that, that, that gets me excited. But then I'm telling you, when I say, if you got your Bibles, please open to, the whole room goes like that. <laughs> and then I have some friends that check on me often. And they say, man, I bet you got a bunch of emails about, about what you said this week, didn't you? And really, generally speaking, no. That you, you, as a, as a body of believers, man, you're so eager to receive the word of God. And, and you say these wonderful things to me all over the place, okay? After a service, you, talk, you say these wonderful things about what an amazing communicator I am. And that's how I know it's God. Because I've listened to my sermons, and they're JV at best. And so if I ever write a book, it's going to be called 
I'm going to write a preaching book, all right, called Moderately Delivered, Exceptionally Received. That's the name of my book. But the way that you receive God's word for you, because I'll tell you this, I take it very, very seriously. I mean, I spend a lot of time in prayer and study and preparing so that we can unpack the word of God for you to receive. And I just believe that the Holy Spirit does his work when you hear it. And then Jesus teaches this parable. Um, it's, It's called the parable of the sowers. And he says a farmer goes out and he scatters seed. And it was the condition of the soil, not the scattering of the seed that made the difference. So here's what I know. When you receive the word of God the way you do, and you do it so well, it's because the soil of your heart is so fertile. It has little to nothing to do with the delivery of the seed that I'm slinging up here. Sometimes I can't believe I say some of the stuff I say. Um, One of the things I love, I love the way we as a church respond. I mean, when there's a need and we just say, hey, here's what we need, then boom, our church responds. Um, The needs board that's been up now for over a year and many, many, many of you have had your needs met through the needs board. That was supposed to be a one-week gimmick because I thought it looked cool for teaching on Acts 2. But when we put that thing up, you guys responded in such an amazing way that it continues to be a huge source of, of you, our church, meeting each other's needs. I love the way you step up to Compassion International. We still sponsor more kids that, uh, per capita than any other church in the history of Compassion International. And again, it's not a competition, but we're winning. You know what I mean? So I love that. I love that, that, um, <clears throat> that we have, as, as we grow, we have serve staff needs. And like over 160 of you showed up Monday. Like you're not busy people. Everybody's busy and and you got plenty to do already. And yet uh, 160 more of you would show up and be onboarded to help serve our growing needs as a church. I'm telling you, I love that. I even love our building. The church is not a building, but I love the building that our church meets in. I think it exemplifies 1122 just perfectly that you are sitting in an abandoned Walmart that two years ago, this space right here looked like the end of a Terminator 2 movie, all right? And now you are in here experiencing the very presence of Almighty God. I love that I preach from ladies' accessories right here, all right? A bunch of discontent women for years were just milling around in this very area thinking, if I buy these costume earrings, my life will be fully and finally satisfied, all right? I love it. I think the Lord has placed you right where, you know, home goods and uh, the, the, I used to buy shotgun shells in our new gen area. I just think that's great. Um, I love, one of the things I love about our church is I was told whatever we do, please hide all the religious imagery because if we put up religious imagery, then, then um, non-church people won't ever show up to your church. So we put a 50 foot steel cross right out front, you know, I just love that. Because, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but all we're trying to do here is point people to the cross. So when you're in the parking lot, we point you to the cross. If you walk in the front doors, the first thing you see at the Welcome Center is a big cross. And if you walk in this room, we have a big cross right back here. Uh, and so all we're trying to do is just point people to, to the cross. And we even wanted our, our building to reflect that. Um, I, I really, really love who we as a people are and who we are becoming. I mean, I love what God is doing in saving marriages and, and leading people to Christ and, and, and having people um, walk through the word for the very first time. I love all that. I also really, really love how we don't take ourselves very seriously here at all. I really love that. And yet we take our relationship with God with utmost serious, of utmost importance. 
that it is so important to us. But, but again, at the same time, we don't take ourselves too seriously. I love so much how this is a movement for all people. Even the baptism videos show that, right? Some people are saved out of paganism and some out of a Bethmore Bible study. Like people are saved out of all kind of, saved out of Sunday school and sin. Like it doesn't matter where you're from or who you are, that we all come to the Father at the foot of the cross. I just love that. Um, I love when we meet out in public somewhere, okay? I love it. And, and, and please, a couple of rules on this. You don't apologize. Don't apologize. We're in this family together. And so if you met a cousin or if you met somebody out in public, and they're like, hey, guess what? We're first cousins. You'd be like, oh, sweet. You'd be stoked about that. I'm stoked about us meeting too, so don't apologize. And you don't have to start it out with, I know you're busy. Who's not busy? If you're not busy, raise your hand. I will get you busy, okay? We got plenty to do here that I can put you to work. No problem. But I love that. I, I met a girl the other day in the grocery store. My dad was in town. And we're more hunters, not so much gatherers. And so we were in the grocery store for hours looking for sugar. We were lost. And this lady, 1122-er, comes up, introduces herself, helped us find some sugar. It was really delightful. But, but here's how, like, when I meet you, here's what I think. I think, without you, I'm just a crazy man with a bullhorn standing on the street corner screaming, you're going to hell, Jesus loves you, okay? So I need you. And so I love when we, get, when we meet each other, okay? So, so if you see us out, if Gretchen and I are out on a date and you're like, oh, I don't want to bother him, you're not a bother. Come say, hey, I'd love to meet you because I never stop. I, I do not cease to give thanks for you. So I know what Paul's talking about here. This is the church that he's planted and he's stoked about who those people are. One of the things I love about our church too is how open and honest you are about your sins and your struggles and your addictions and your habits and the things that are not going well in your life. And in fact, I think um, one of our, one of our pers- people on our worship staff put together this little piece of art. And when we were studying Acts chapter 19, um, which is where the church at Ephesus got planted, one of the things that made the church of Ephesus so awesome is it says, and those who believed in Jesus came forward um, divulging their sinful practices. And so back when we were studying that last year, um, we told you that repentance should be a part of, of your everyday walk as a Christian. And we just encouraged you just to repent, to write down, divulge the practices that were keeping you from God. And so you can't really read them here, but they're down here on the bottom. And I just love how they've been covered over by something much better than the sins that are being confessed. And it's a picture of what God's been doing in many of your lives. And if you look up here too, and if you were able to read them, a lot of it's not light stuff. I mean, there's lust and there's money and there's greed and there's people confessing uh, adultery. And there's a mom on here that says that she's more selfish about what, getting what she wants as opposed to taking care of her children. I mean, these are some real things here. And you know what I love about this church? That at this church we know it's okay to not be okay. That God doesn't love some future version of you. That therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And whatever you struggle with, whatever your sin, we know that that is from the enemy. And that God's love poured out for you and me on the cross is greater than whatever sin that you struggle with. And so the reason we don't look down on you is because we walk with you. We just walk with Christ, so now we walk free and clear, and you can too. And I love the way our church has embraced all the people 
in our church. And I love that. I love that. I love that. And so Paul says, I don't cease to give thanks for you. And he goes on to say, remembering you in my prayers. So I asked uh, some folks on staff to just get the prayer cards out. And I want you to know this. This is every prayer card, every prayer card, except for one little stack from last week that's sitting on my desk because I hadn't prayed for, y'all, for you yet. But all of these, but I will. I'll take them with me uh, over the weekend and pray for every one of them. Every one of these prayer cards are literally all the cards that you guys have turned in since the day we opened. And I've prayed over every single one of these cards over and over and over every week. And listen, I'm going to tell you, it takes a while. I mean, a stack of cards comes in like this. And I've just got to tell you this, that I've got church growth experts that just tell me, um, listen, that was cool to do when you were a little church. And I have to just go, we were never a little church. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but you don't have time to do that anymore. And I thought, yeah, but see, I'm the pastor of this thing. And so I won't be the only one. And I'm not able to follow up with each and every one. But every single week I pray, and I don't pray about you either. You know the difference in praying for and praying about? To pray about you is, dear God, please help Ted not be so much like Ted and be like me. Okay, that's praying about. <laughs> but just on your behalf, and you don't even need me to do this. I, my prayers aren't any better than your prayers. But I just pray over these cards. And occasionally the Lord will nudge me and I'll call somebody up and, and just see how we can help. And you know what the number one prayer request is in these cards? The number one. So there's a lot on health. There's a lot on finances. There's a lot on marriages. But the number one requested thing that you guys want me and the staff to pray for is for us to pray for somebody that you love that doesn't love Jesus yet. That's, it, that's the one, over and over and over and over and over. Um, and sometimes they come in the form of a, of a threat. Uh, please pray for my first cousin, Sheila. She will be here next week at church. <laughs> And I know in the, it's almost like parentheses, so Joby, don't screw this up, okay? Because I know what they've been doing. You've been investing in your friend or family member or coworker or whoever. You've been investing, investing, investing. And you're, and you're, um, you're hoping and you, you took a big risk to invite them here to our church. I love that you invite people. And then you're scared of what I'm going to say a little bit. I understand. But, but the prayer cards over and over and over again are praying for other people's salvation. Here's one from last week. I'm, I'm going to kind of edit it a little bit. It says, I'd like you guys to please pray for, and puts a name in. Please pray that God would pour into her and speak to her. Please pray that she would understand that her sins are forgiven and to remove the guilt that weighs so heavily on her. Please pray that God will guide her in the right direction in making decisions on very important things in her life right now. Please pray that God would calm her, ground her, comfort her, and remove the anger, bitterness, and resentment that is built up in her. And lastly, that God would walk with her during the tough times in her life, and that she would turn to God and lean on Him in times of hardship. Do you know what I find over and over and over that you are praying and you want us to pray for our folks? Is you, I mean, that prayer card is this. Hey, would you guys pray the gospel over this friend of mine. And so I just need you to know that, that we have a staff and elders and deacons that pray for you. And here's the reason. Um, it really, it has nothing to do with organizational success. In fact, organizationally, you might look at it uh, in the flesh as a big waste of time. 
But we think there's not a more important thing than we could do than to pour our hearts out on behalf of you before an almighty God. Because we believe that, that with God, all things are possible. And we believe that um, how you are doing in your relationship with the Lord is more important than what you are doing. And so I pray for you, and then a part of the reason I do, because the Apostle Paul, who seems like he was a pretty busy guy, it says that he does not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, here's what Paul prayed for his church in Ephesus in verse 17. He's really going to pray three things. He says, he prays this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So, just an aside real quick. Remember last week we talked about who God is. He's one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so, essentially, um, what Paul is doing is some good Trinitarian theology here. He's like, I'm praying in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that you would have revelation in, number one, knowledge of Him. This is the number one thing that Paul is praying for for his people at the church of Ephesus. That above all else, you would have knowledge of him or knowledge of Jesus. And so this is something that I pray for you and pray for us as a church. That you would have knowledge of Jesus. And when the Bible uses the word knowledge, it doesn't just mean to know in your head. Okay? It means like a a deep, abiding, love, soul level, coming together kind of knowledge. And I'll give you an example. The Bible says that Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. Does that make sense? So that's not just, ooh, I know about that. No, but this is knowledge at a soul level. And so the, the biggest thing, one of the biggest things Paul's praying for, for his people, is that, is that you would know Jesus. And I want to echo that prayer. I just want to pray that you would know Jesus. That you wouldn't know me. That you not necessarily know our programs. That you don't, I don't care if you have a sticker on the back of your car. That's not the point. 1122 is not the point. Jesus is the point. I'm not the point. Our programs aren't the point. The people on staff are not the point. But Jesus is the point. And all we're supposed to do is point you to Jesus. And so that's what I pray over and over and over. That you would have a knowledge of him. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. This is the second thing he's going to pray for them. So the first thing he prays is that you would have a knowledge of him. And the second thing is that, is that um, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. In other words, it, he, Paul's praying, I wish you could see at the heart level the way God sees. This is what we talked about last week. That really, one of the main themes of the book of Ephesians, it's about identity and not activity. That if you know that you are bought and saved and purchased by God, that you are a son or a daughter adopted into his family... When you get that identity thing right, then the activity will really take care of itself. That the reason you obey is because you have been accepted. And so many of us think it goes the other way around, that I've got to obey so that he will accept me. And so Paul is praying for this church in Ephesus saying, I hope and pray that, your, that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. And that's what I pray for you too. I pray that, that God would open up the eyes of your heart so that you could see yourself the way he sees you. And that you're not your past, you're not your mistakes, you're not your sin, you're not the things you used to do, and you don't have to do the things you used to do because you're not the person you used to be if you're in Christ. Now all that old stuff is dead and there's a new you and the new you is with Christ living inside of you. And if you can get that part right, if you can begin to understand your identity is in Christ, that you are an adopted son or daughter of God if you have surrendered to Christ, then everything 
changes. And so he says that he prays that you would have the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know, and, and then when, you're, when the eyes of your heart are enlightened, three things happen. And I'm not making up these lists, I'm just reading it right here out of the text. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. You see, if, if God illuminates the eyes of your heart and you begin to understand your identity in Christ, then one of the things that's going to happen is you're going to begin to know hope. Regardless of your situation, your situations will no longer be your God, but if you're in Christ, then you have hope. Because as long as there's Jesus, there's hope. And so if you're in a marriage that's just on the rocks and you think there's no hope, then that's a lie from the pit of hell. Because if there's Jesus, there's hope. And you might feel like there's no hope, but then you just got to have God enlighten the eyes of your heart. And listen, folks, I mean, if you're in a tough spot right now financially or relationally or in any other way, then I I just need to tell you that the only legitimate source of hope in an ever-changing world is Jesus. That he is your hope. And so if Paul is praying that that, that your eyes would be enlightened, and when that happens, that you would know the hope that's only found in Jesus to which he has called you. And then the other thing he wants you to know when your eyes, the eyes of your heart are enlightened are what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And now, the riches of his glorious inheritance is not necessarily cash and prizes here on this earth. But the, but the riches of its inheritance is that abundant life that you have in Christ Jesus. And so many times people get this thing confused. They think if I follow Jesus, then he's going to give me this rich and glorious inheritance while I'm here on earth. Look, God may bless your socks off in order to draw you to him. He may. He may just give you so much that you're so overcome with with humility and gratefulness and gratitude and thankful that God would give you so much that you surrender your life to Jesus. If that's you, please come see me at the end of the service. Because God loves you and I have a plan for your life, okay? (laughs) But for most of us, for most of us, God actually withholds many, many, many um, earthly blessings because his love for us is so great. The same reason you don't let your children eat M&Ms for breakfast. Because you love them and you withhold from them many of the things that they want right now because of God's grace and he's got this incredible inheritance stored up for you and the real root of the inheritance is not even um, the wedding feast that's described in the book of Revelation or the streets of gold or the mansions all of that is just silliness compared to the surpassing knowledge of your creator that he loves you, he cares for you and that you could be in a right relationship with him forever and ever and in fact, what will begin to happen is when the, when the eyes of your hearts are enlightened, the things of this earth grow strangely dim because they just seem like temporary stuff now. And if you put all your time, effort, and energy into the things of this world, it's really just a, a pursuit and silliness. I mean, it's like putting hardwood floors in your hotel room. It's a very poor investment because you're not going to stay there long enough to enjoy it. And so a part of... A part of the glorious inheritance is not what God gives you, but the fact that you get God. And so he's praying that your eyes of your heart will be enlightened and you'll know hope. You'll know the riches of his glorious acceptance in the saints. I mean, glorious inheritance in the saints, verse 19. And 
what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the, work is, the working of his great might. So that you'd know hope, you would know his riches, and you would know his power. That you would know when he illuminates the eyes of your heart that greater is he who is in you than anything you're staring at. That, that you would begin to see your life in the context of eternity. And that no matter how good things are or no matter how bad things are, that it is just, a, just an instant in the realm of all eternity that you would spend with him. And that you would also begin to understand is that because if you are in Christ and he is your brother and that you have all access to God and, and, and the things that Christ had access to and the power that he had over the grave that now resides in you. And that you have the power of peace that transcends understanding. And those kind of things can be yours when you begin to understand whose you are, that your identity is in Christ. So he prays, knowledge of him, that your eye, the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. And then in verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So the third big bucket thing that Paul is praying for the people in Ephesus is this, is that, and he worked, not you worked. And he worked. That when Christ went to the cross and he said, it is finished, then it was finished. That when you surrendered your life to Jesus, then the work to try to impress God was done and over. And so Paul is praying for his people, knowledge of him, that intimate relational knowledge with Jesus, that your eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would be able to see you the way God sees you. And thirdly, that God did the work, you didn't do the work. Verse 21, it says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, and he put all things under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so essentially what he's saying there is that he says, Church, I love you. I pray for you. Here's what I pray I pray that you would know Jesus. I pray that you would know the richness of fellowship with him. And, and I pray that you would know that he did the work and you didn't do the work. And so now he's kind of talking all to the, to the global church there at Ephesus, the whole church, the big church body. And then what he's going to do in chapter 2, verse 1, he's going to shift gears and he's going to answer this question. Okay, Paul, that's great. All right, so Jesus came, died on the cross, resurrected on the third day, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father and all authority is his. Now, what does that have to do with me personally? I mean, what does that have to do with me? Because tomorrow morning, Paul, i got to get up and drive carpool, get the kids ready, you know, go to work, all that kind of, get kids dropped off to camp, do all those kind of things. I've just got like a regular life individually, so what does that, what does that do with me? And so in chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, And you, and again, he's talking to the church, right? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so in other words, what he's saying to the church is, hey, listen, church, if you've been walking with Jesus for a little while, first and foremost, let me remind you, there's no place for um, a swagger or a limp around here, okay? So I, I've always found it just fascinating when Christians look down their nose at non-Christians, right? Um, or, or when Christians or the church is so surprised that our world acts like they don't know Jesus, so here's the newsflash. Our world doesn't know Jesus. Our school systems don't know Jesus. Our government doesn't know Jesus. There's a lot of people that don't know Jesus. And when people that are lost act lost, that's how they're supposed to act. 
And then, before you feel all high and mighty, Paul goes, whoa, 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 whoa. And you were like that too one time. You and I, we were dead in our transgressions. Now, notice here, he didn't say bad. He didn't say, you know, you used to be bad, and then you got a lot better. No, it's way worse than that. You were dead. Dead. Dead, decaying, rotting, stinking, dead. That was you, and that was me. That was our condition before we were in Christ. That we weren't just bad people that need to quit cussing so much. No, you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That used to be your title, sons of disobedience. Doesn't sound very lovely, does it? So this is why it's text like this that I lovingly inform us all that you and I or wretched, black-hearted sinners. Wretched. And when I see people are like, how dare you call me that? Oh, it's worse than you think. I mean, seriously, it is worse than you think. Now, it makes sense. Because if you live in this world, and we all live in this world, then it's only natural that we would be conformed to this world. That we would follow the course of this world. And what, the, what happens, the course of this world finds its identity really in one of four things. All right? People that are Christians find their identity in Christ, and the course of this world leads us to try to find our identity in really one of four things, big buckets. One is people try to find their identity in themselves. That's why if you go in a bookstore, the largest section is self-help books, right? Because people are trying to become a better version of them. And every single one of us at some time have bought into the lie, have we not? You and I have thought, if I could just be fill-in-the-blank, then I would be finally, fully and finally satisfied. That's why, that's why um, like, is anybody even thinking about New Year's resolutions anymore? I mean, we're halfway through our year, and didn't you lie to yourself on all six of your resolutions? I mean, really, you even posted them on your refrigerator so you would just proclaim what a liar you are to yourself. And the crazy thing about turning to yourself, turning to yourself for your identity and your value is... Um, <clears throat> Even if you were to achieve everything that you set out to achieve to improve you, it doesn't really do anything for your soul, does it? I mean, think about it this way. Think about yourself five years ago. I mean, seriously, think about yourself five years ago. All right, get that in your mind. Train wreck, right? I mean, you think about yourself five years ago, and I go, oh my gosh, I was such an idiot. And so I have a feeling that five years from now, I'll look back at the, five, uh, at the me right now and think, Oh my gosh, what an idiot. But right now, I think I'm kind of awesome. You see how that works? <laughs> or we could do it in the reverse. At, at whatever age you are right now, okay, five years ago, didn't you think when you were your age now, you were really going to have it all together? Well, here we are. It's really disappointing, is it not? I mean, it really is disappointing. And even if you had the willpower to pull it all off, all right, and you got... You got Ripped, you got abs, you got cash falling out your pocket, and you're driving around some sweet car, living in your dream house. You'd still be dissatisfied. You would have put your value in the wrong place. So some people, many people turn to self. I'm just going to be a better version of me. Many people turn to religion as a course of this world, which is really just turning to self with an amen on it, right? That's just, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to please God by being a better Christian. If you even use the phrase, better Christian, it's evidence that you don't understand the gospel. 
Because if you're not careful, especially in the South, man, you can go to a church and they'll just give, they'll get the scroll out and they'll just go, here's what it looks like. See, good Christians do not listen to rock and roll music. All right? Good Christians. Oh, I remember this. This is what I was taught. We were, we, we were showing this movie when I was in, in youth group. When it was youth group. I think it was called Hell's Bells. And it was the danger, the danger of secular music. And, and do we have any Southern Baptists in here that they showed this movie to? Okay. Yeah, right. You were there. And the, and the band they used was Journey. That's the, the evil. That was it. And we had like, I'm telling you, it was crazy. And, and they would, we had a, a, like a record burning. See, anyway, tapes and records. All right. We had like a tape and record burning youth night one night. And I remember showing up. I was like, I am not burning my Guns N' Roses. <laughs> and kids would have, right, they'd have their, I mean, really quality music, like Def Leppard. I was like, hey, here, I'll burn that for you. And I just... And that's, that's what happens, man. When you, you turn to religion. Because the other crazy thing is um, there can be some really bad things on the list. Like in the, in the world I grew up in, you could be super sexist and super racist and be a really good Christian. In fact, the more you were those t- two things, it kind of rose you up on the ladder of being a good Christian. It's exhausting, isn't it? I mean, if you just tried to fall into that theology that God is good and you're bad, so you better try harder. See you next week. It is exhausting. So some people turn to themselves in the course of this world for their identity, some to religion. Some people turn to this world, either the pleasures of this world, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, usually all mixed together in one event. Um, And then other people to kind of the the shiny, prosperous things of this world. And I'm telling you, it's a futile pursuit my, my favorite example to use, I've used it a thousand times because I, you're going to see it the next time. If, if you go and try on new clothes, you know, you stand in that little room and you've got these clothes hanging up. And you usually, ladies, you usually have two sizes. There's like the one day and then I, just, I might want to get this one too, you know, just in case I can't get that one. All right, so I understand. And then you stand in the mirror and you take off these clothes and you make a pile with these clothes. And you feel angry against those clothes, don't you? You sorry clothes. You have let me down. You're frumpy. You're sorry. Just cast you aside into a pile. Meet my new clothes. And you get on your new clothes and you just, you know, whatever it takes. Right? Get them all going. Get your shirt on. Get that all stuff. And then, then do, do your own little reveal. And you look in that mirror and you think, I have arrived. I look so amazing. I feel so good about me. I mean, I'm, a guy, I'm not a shopper at all, but I put on some new clothes, and I'm like, I feel like a better man. <laughs> Do you know that these damned clothes that were down here in this pile that you've cast into the pit of fire, at one point, not too long ago, depending on your socioeconomic bracket, those clothes used to be the same clothes that were on you, making you feel like a better person. The crazy thing is you think somehow these clothes are going to be different than those clothes. It's the cul-de-sac of stupidity. (laughs) Stuff won't satisfy. I've got an idea. More of the same stuff, just newer. That's going to satisfy. Or another course of this world is we look to others. We look to others. And then it usually takes you too long to figure out how dumb that is. It's usually your 10-year reunion. 
And you look around and you'd be like, I cannot believe I used to care what all these fat, ugly people think about me. I don't even know them anymore. It's the truth. And so what Paul is saying here is that's where we all used to walk. Apart from Christ, we've all walked in those directions. He says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. All of us used to do that. And I'm going to tell you, I was the worst one in the whole room. Worst in the room. I made the biggest promises to God of anybody in the room. And I broke everyone. Because I was bargaining with God. God, if you'll get me out of this one, I'll do anything you want. And then he'd get me out, and I'd misquote a verse about grace. But we all lived there before, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Did you know, apart from Christ, you and I were children of wrath? You don't hear that a lot in church, do you? Not super popular. You don't hear worship songs about it, right? Your wrath, oh Lord, will burn me to a crisp. No, you're like, oh, Jesus. Yes, praise God. No, but it's true. Children of wrath. And I know, and especially like if you're under my age, right? You're like, yo, you shut up. I am a snowflake. I am a rainbow. My mama said I was unique just like everyone else. No, you're not. No, you're not. And then some people, that's when you also push back. No, I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, compared to the evening news, compared to your freshman roommate, pretty good. Compared to an almighty God, no good. No good. You're vile. I'm vile. Everybody with little kids knows this. You don't have to teach your kids to sin. They just, it's just in their nature. They bite and claw and lie. Lie. I mean, lie to your face. Reagan, did you eat the chocolate? No, daddy. It's on your face. JP did it. JP ate the chocolate and smeared it on your face. I don't know, Daddy. Okay? Liar. I'm pretty sure Gretchen did not teach her that. She picked it up on her own. Now, for the gospel, gospel just means good news. For news to be good, it's got to enter dark places, enter bad places. If the message stopped there, it'd be awful. Wouldn't it be just, it would be the most awful thing ever, ever, ever. Hey, God's good. You're bad. Tough trying. The end. It's awful. But then you get verse 4, and two of the most amazing words in all of the Scripture, especially if you can really grab on to this. But God. Now, when you begin to understand, but God, when you can really grab on to and not try to justify your sinfulness, but just grab on to, you know what, you're right. I was a son of disobedience. I was a child of wrath. I wanted just me and mine, me and mine. I was like the seagulls on Finding Nemo. Just mine, 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 mine. It was all about me. When you begin to understand that that really is the reality and that's why your life is the way it is because you've been the Lord of your life and when you're the Lord of your life, this is where it ends up. And you really begin to feel the weight of that and go, oh no, what am I going to do? Nothing. There's nothing you can do. Nothing. You're saying it's hopeless? Apart from Christ, yeah, I'm saying it's hopeless. Are you saying we're all going to hell? Apart from Christ, that's what I'm saying. And then right in that moment of ultimate despair, and you go, oh, I've got no chance here. Then you get, but God. But God. So I've got good news. Here comes the good news. But God. 
You know, one of the greatest sermons ever preached was by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you've ever studied it in your English class, your English professor got it totally and completely wrong. They didn't really read the whole sermon. First of all, Edwards read the whole thing behind his pulpit in a low voice, just read through the whole thing. And the premise of the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is this, is that the reason that you and I are even in church today is because... God is holding us in his hands to keep us from dive bombing to the pits of hell. And he fully explains hell. You should just Google it and read the sermon. And yet by his mercy and by his grace and because God is love, it is his very hands. That's the only thing keeping us out right now. It's the only thing. It's not because you walk on a treadmill and went gluten free. That ain't keeping you out. It's because of his hands holding you here to give you and I the opportunity to change our eternal destiny and surrender our life to Jesus. And that, that's the hands. That's God's hands. And is he angry? Yeah, because we've sinned against an almighty God and because he's holy and he's just, that sin will require punishment and payment. But because God is love. God has to be stirred to wrath, but God's default nature is love. God is love. And that's what it means here. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy. And mercy is not getting what you deserve. You don't want to get what you deserve. Because the wages of sin is death. When we sin against God, we actually deserve to die in that very moment. When my precious little beautiful liar baby with a chocolate on her mouth lied to me. In that moment, if God was only just, boom, there's no more rain. But God. Being rich in mercy. You see, and a lot of people will be like, well, that's not fair. You don't want fair? Nobody wants fair. You only play the fair card when it works for you, not against you, right? JP's playing baseball this year. He hits the ball, runs to first base. They throw it. The kid catches it. JP's out. He is out. And they call him safe, and I go, thank you, Jesus. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow, all right? Fair ended at the Garden of Good and Evil. I did not walk out and be like, hey, uh, he was actually out. No, I don't want fair. I don't care about fair in that moment. And neither do you. I know you don't. Because you've never been driving down the road and see a state trooper pull somebody over and you pull in behind them. Hey, listen, it would only be fair to tell you I was also speeding. So I would like to give you some money. Mm-mm. You don't want fair. None of us do. But God, not being fair. Fair is not a biblical value. Okay, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, like we've done nothing to deserve this at all, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, you are the passive agent here. It, it should, you get to just relax. I mean, you really do. You just get to exhale one time in church and go, oh gosh. So it's not about me doing good enough? Mm-mm. No, it's by grace that you've been saved. And mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. So in God's mercy, he didn't kill you immediately, and in his grace, he offers you eternal life. I mean, that's why the hymn writer calls it amazing grace. So he says it's by grace that you've been saved, and raised, this is past tense. So if you're in Christ, if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, this is who you are now. And raised, that's past tense, raised us up with him and seated, again past tense, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. If you sent your kids to Backyard Bible Club, they memorized this verse this year. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
You know one thing I know about adults? That you're ter- terrible gift receivers. You're terrible, terrible gift receivers. Jesus, at one point in his ministry, took up his kids, and he said, do not hinder the kids from coming to me. And then he looked at everybody and says, unless you change and become like one of these children of mine, you have no part of me. Children are awesome, awesome gift receivers. Have any of your children, little guys, have any of your children ever said to you on Christmas Day, you know what, Mom, that's enough. I think I've had my fill of presents. I am overwhelmed by your love towards me, and I don't think I could ever repay you. So let's just, let's just leave those last three unopened. Mm-mm. My children are amazing gift receivers, whether they deserve it or not. Okay, I could just keep giving and keep giving, and they would keep opening, and they would enjoy it like crazy and might not even say thank you. You know how I know you're a terrible um, gift receiver? It's because you watch, especially men, you watch men at a dinner table when the check comes. And they're like, no, let me get that. No, I'll get that. You know, and they fight over it because when you, because here's what we do as adults. If you give me a nice gift, I look at, I get it, I open it, and in my insecurity, I do two things. One, I go, crap, now I got to get you something. That's what I think. (laughs) That's what I think, Okay. That's really all I think. I go, thank you, and then now i got to get you something. Now, you can keep giving me gifts, okay? I'll send you a thank you note, but gift on. But when Jesus says that you need to change and become like a little child, one of the things that you have to change and be able to do is learn how to be a good gift receiver. That God has given us the gift of salvation by grace through faith by what Christ did on the cross. And then it goes on to say, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So you know those lists I talk about all the time? Like, hey, good Christians do these things and don't do these things. Ephesians 2 would say, burn the list. Burn the list, burn the list. Get your identity right, and your activity will fall in line. And if you are doing activities that are ruining your relationship with God, then don't do that, because you really love God. Not so that He will love you, but burn the list. And so when Paul here says, it's not by works that you're saved, it also means that your identity is not found in those good things that you do. Not at all. The Bible has some graphic, graphic illustrations to describe the things that you do to try to please God or gain His approval. Now again, if you love God, and just out of an overflow of your love for God, you begin to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, You go to church, you sing songs, you study the Bible, you serve people, you love one another, you just do those. And people say, why do you do that? Because God loves me. Not because I'm trying to get God to love me. That's the fundamental difference. See, if you do those acts out of a love for God because you know that he loved you first, it's worship unto God. If you do those good works to try to appease God or put him in your debt, I can't describe to you how offensive that is to God when you try to earn your salvation. Two primary illustrations. The New Testament, the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, he lists all of his religious credentials. And then he says, I consider it all rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ. I've taught you before that word rubbish is skubilon. Skubilon. That's the Greek. It means it's it's slang for animal dung. Now, again, I've never heard anybody in Jacksonville use the word rubbish, okay? Maybe I heard it on the World Cup. You know, British people are like, ooh, that's rubbish. But we don't say rubbish. 
What do you call slang animal dung? If you step in it, you're not like, oh my, Martha, I have stepped in rubbish. No! First word's bull, second word we ain't gonna say in here, right? So what God sees as your good works to try to prove to him that you're good enough to be on his team, he says, that's bull, Scubulon. That's what he says. That's what it is right there. Get that out of my face. The Old Testament one is horrific. Horrific. The book of Isaiah says that our righteous deeds are filthy rags to God. Now, the, the translators of the Bible have to put filthy rags because they can't put what it really is. But literally, in Isaiah, what the filthy rags are, used menstrual cloths. I mean, come on. Imagine for Father's Day, if that's what your wife brought you. Here, honey, I got you a present. You're like, sweet, a present? Pastor told me I got to be a good gift receiver. And you open it up, you'd be like, here, get your... You are a child of wrath. Get out of my face. That's how offensive... I think the Bible uses that graphic language, so you would go, all right, well, I'm not doing that. Okay? When you think you're saved by your own doing instead of saved... By God's grace, through faith, not, not, not as a result of what you have done. Because this is not yours to brag about. This is your salvation is about God's glory and your joy. So here's the point. We are not mistakers in need of a life coach. We're sinners in need of a Savior. You're not just a bad person that needs to be better. You're a dead person that needs life. And the only way to have life is to have the creator of life breathe his pneuma or spirit or ruah. Breathe that in you. And then you can become his son or his daughter. He poured it out on the cross to purchase for you your salvation. And it's on him to save you. That's what he does. It's not about how good you think you are. You'll never be good enough. It's not how bad you think you've been. Your badness is nothing compared to his death and resurrection. And let me just tell you this too. If you're all busted up, guess what? It doesn't even matter how you got there. I mean, this is important. It doesn't even matter how you got there. About, you know, a few weeks ago, I preached on how to raise a daughter and just let you know how much I just love and adore Reagan Capri. I mean, you know what? For about two hours today, crazy. We sat on the couch just hugging, and I watched hunting shows. What more precious daughter could there be? You understand? (laughs) And about two, two and a half years ago, after one of the services, Reagan, this was when we were at beach. Reagan was in the kids' department over there, and somebody went to get her for us. And on the way back, I mean, we do the, hey, if we're traveling anywhere, we hold hands. That's how we do. We hold hands. I mean, we just do. Across the streets, even just crossing the campus, it doesn't matter. We just hold hands. And so Reagan pulls her hand out from the person that went to get her for us and starts running towards the doors. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Beach UMC, but they have these, like, heavy, hurricane-proof kind of glass doors. And so Reagan was coming in, and somebody was leaving the church service that, that time and uh, didn't, in their glass doors, so you can see right through them, and, and opened the door and didn't see Reagan, and it just caught the top of her toenail and just pulled it straight back and, you know, almost off. All the way off may have been a little better. It was just a little dangly piece of butt right there, right? And so somebody scoops up Reagan and brings her in to me. And, you know, the service is over. And I'm just saying hey to people. And there she is. And it's just bleeding like crazy. And so I go up and I scoop up little Reagan. And, man, you know, if, you, if your kid's ever been hurt or sick or in pain, the Bible changes for you, doesn't it? Doesn't it totally change for you? Like when I became a dad, my whole Bible changed. Like that story about the prodigal son really became to me about the father. 
And what would it look like if my son ran away? Or what would I do for my kid? You know what you'd do for your kid. You'd do anything in the world. And so there she is, and she's bleeding like crazy. And, and I was like, we're going to the mercy room right now. We're going to the mercy room. And, and here's the thing. Here's the thing about, about being a good parent. Is that when your child is hurt, it really doesn't matter how or why. You know? When your child is hurt, it doesn't really matter how or why. The only thing that matters is fixing it. I didn't need to do a little diagram about who did what. Was it Reagan's fault? Sure, it was her fault. She pulled her hand away. She went running away. Was it the babysitter? I don't know. Sure. Hold on to her, all right? Was it the person that opened the door? Yeah, I looked at the door before you opened the thing. But that, well, what good does it do to spend any time on that whatsoever? When your child is hurt, it doesn't matter how or why. The only thing that matters is getting this thing fixed. And so if your life is all busted up, guess what? I don't even really care how you got there, Okay? Now, I don't want you to go there again, so we're not going to run into opening doors for the rest of our lives and claim grace. But if you're busted up here, I mean, at that soul level, and you either think, I've done so bad that God won't save me, or I'm so good that he ought to, either one of those are a result, result in a busted up life. The only thing that matters is God wants to get it fixed. And a good heavenly father sees you all busted up. And guess what you don't get from God? You don't get a bunch of I told you so's. You get a, I'll fix it right now. For God so loved you that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He didn't show up to say wretched black-hearted sinners. He didn't show up to say sons of disobedience. He didn't show up to say children of wrath. He showed up not to condemn the world but to save it. To say, hey folks, here I am to fix it. Here I am to fix up your busted life. Whether it's busted up by rebellion or it's busted up by religion, it doesn't matter. It's all busted up. And he is the only one that can fix it. And so the reason I stand up here and preach the gospel to you is because it doesn't matter how you got where you are. The only thing that matters is who can fix it. And the one that can make you righteous before God the one that has made a way for your sins to be forgiven and for you to be adopted into the family of God is Jesus Christ. And no matter how good you think you are or bad you think you've been, he wants you. He wants you. C.S. Lewis says it this way. I put the full quote in your notes because I want you to read it sometime. But I highlighted this one. He says, he says it this way. In other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. Please hear that. You're not just an imperfect creature that needs improvement. You don't need to just quit drinking so much, quit cussing so much, and quit telling so many lies. You're not just an imperfect creature who needs improvement, but we are. he is a rebel who must lay down his arms. That you and I, by nature, are sinners against an almighty God. And the good news is not, not just try to quit sinning so much. The good news is lay down your arms and surrender and surrender and give up. Say, okay, God, my life is busted up. I've been in charge of my life and it is all busted up. And I need you to fix me at the heart level. God, I want to know you. I want you to open the eyes of my heart. I want to know the power of the resurrection. And you do that by laying down your arms, repenting, throwing your hands in the air and saying, God, I surrender. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not 
anything that you've done on your own. But it's a gift of God. There's some of you tonight that for the very first time, with the faith of a little child, need to receive the gift of salvation from God. Would you please bow your head and close your eyes? And if that's you tonight and you are ready to receive the gift of salvation, not by anything that you do, but by what Christ did on the cross and the resurrection, would you receive the free gift of salvation tonight just by raising your hand and saying, here I am, I want to receive the free gift of salvation. My life is busted up and I need to be fixed by what Christ has done for me on the cross. Dear Father in heaven, God, I thank you and I praise you, God, that you save God, I thank you for those two very powerful words in in Ephesians chapter 2, but God. Lord, I thank you that even when we were far from you, God, because of your grace and your mercy and your love, God, that you, God, that you richly poured out your love for us with Christ dying on the cross. And Lord, I pray that there would be a man, a woman, a student in this place tonight. And they would receive you as a free gift. And they would experience the forgiveness of sin. They would experience your imputed righteousness. And they would experience the adoption of them into your family. We prayed in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey, would you please stand as we close? Hey, I want to remind you of one thing. Especially if you're a Christian and been a Christian for a while. You never, ever, 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 ever get over or get past or move away from the gospel. Please don't ever think, don't ever think that the gospel saves you and then after you become a Christian, you move on into deeper waters. That couldn't be further from the truth. That when you know Jesus, you just circle around that cross. You just circle around that cross. And it is the gospel not only that saves you and makes you right before God, but also gives you the freedom to walk with him as your Lord and Savior for all of your days. So when we respond here, we respond to the gospel. That's what worship is. It's a response to the gospel. So we're going to do that by singing. We also respond to the gospel by bringing our tithes and offerings to any of the giving boxes around the room. And for many of us, we respond to the gospel by coming to the altar and laying our cares upon him. Because he cares for us. Let us respond.